Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Disability rights advocates say media coverage of the U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania is an example of ableism or discrimination against people with disabilities or people perceived to be disabled. Disability advocate Talila Lewis's working definition of ableism is, quote, a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, and excellence. Getting back to the Pennsylvania race, some question whether Democrat John Fetterman, who's recovering from a stroke, should be running for Senate against Republican Mehmet Oz. Today, where we live, we talk about ableism in life and in politics. Fetterman has had some difficulty speaking after his stroke, but does difficulty speaking mean difficulty thinking? Coming up, we hear from a neurologist. You can join us too. the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Janet Williams, CEO and president of Minds Matter LLC, who works with individuals with brain injury and their families. Janet has a mobility impairment as a result of a broken back and spinal cord injury. Janet, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I started off by uh, reading a couple of definitions of ableism, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that and, and how you've experienced that in your life, Janet. Yeah, you know, my um, injury was just three years ago, um, but I've spent my life working with people with disabilities. It certainly gave me an entirely um, different uh, vantage point. Um, you know, you, you think you're sympathetic and then it happens to you. Um, and for me, um, I have seen it with people kind of micromanaging my movement, um, whether that be people that I've just met or strangers um, and, and some, some with the people in my life. So things like, are you sure you can do that? Um, and, and questioning my ability to know myself. Um, and I think that that is such a huge theme in this um, whole debate is, ask Fetterman, <laughs> you know, like, why are we not asking the person affected by it? Um, and when we do, we continue to doubt. So I just went on a, a pretty big trip and I was with eight other people I had just met. And the first day someone turns to me and says, you're just going to have to hurry up. <laughs> and I just looked and said, why? Well, she couldn't answer. She couldn't answer why I needed to hurry up. That was her standard. So that really gets to what ableism, it's you know a discrimination and social prejudice on what the expectations are for people without disabilities and, and putting those on people with disabilities. We know that there are, are different types of discrimination, but do you think ableism is a discrimination that society will tolerate? Absolutely, it does every day. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we see it every day. We see it when People choose an inaccessible venue for a meeting or event, um, therefore just excluding some participants. You know, um, 
using the the not the handicap stall when you don't need it and then someone with a disability comes in and can't use it um you know talking to a person with a disability like they're a child or talking about them instead of directly to them or speaking for them these are things that we see every single day and they're different forms of ableism um, and the media does it too when they portray someone as a hero overcoming their disability why do you have to overcome your disability um, or as a charity case who needs a handout um, and so i think that it is embedded in society and that this debate will help us focus on policy you're listening to where we live as we talk about ableism in life and in politics. Again, with my guest, Dr. Janet Williams, CEO and president of Minds Matter LLC. For another perspective, with us on the phone is Lydia XC Brown, a disability justice advocate and an autistic person who's also running as a candidate for Maryland State House. Lydia, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I read a couple definitions of ableism, so I wanted to ask you the same question when we think about ableism, you know, what uh, our listeners should know. Most people think of ableism simply as stereotyping or prejudice, and while that's certainly true, ableism goes much deeper, and it's much more pernicious than that. Ableism is ultimately a system of violence. It's about power. Ableism is a system of power relations and power differentials, where just in the same way as the definition you read from Talila Lewis describes, ableism is who gets to count as human and who does not, who is considered to be well, functional, healthy, or whole, and who is considered to be broken, deviant, disordered, or defective. In other words, ableism teaches us who deserves the respect of personhood and dignity and who is as disposable and expendable in society based on or perceived capacities, disability, and other characteristics of lives. Uh, Lydia, we were talking about the John uh, Fetterman, Memon Oz race in Pennsylvania. I wanted to hear your perspective on the coverage of that Senate race, you know, how the public, how the media have responded, because you also have another perspective, because you were also running as a candidate in Maryland. Right. And I can say that as a disabled person who chose to run, I found it very interesting that I've been doing advocacy now for over 15 years on disability rights and disability justice, and I've been featured in the news media frequently for the type of work that I've been doing, for the projects that I've been engaged with as part of my work with a number of different organizations. And really, I think that the conversation we're having today is one of only two times that I've actually spoken to media directly related to my candidacy, and both of those times have been related to displays of ableism toward candidates for office, Fetterman or otherwise. And so I have to say that while the coverage of Fetterman's experience recovering from a stroke and being a person with an auditory processing disability has been upsetting and angering, certainly not surprising. It's reflective and emblematic of the kind of rhetoric that surrounds disability around politics all the time, whether from the right or from the left. The real issues are never discussed. So the real issue 
right, in Fetterman's race is that Oz doesn't even live in Pennsylvania. But instead of talking about that, the media is instead obsessed with whether he's capable of thought, he's capable of speech instead. And there was a similar dynamic coming from the other side over the last four years with the former president, where people would criticize him as ugly, fat, probably mentally ill or learning disabled, instead of, like, I don't know, addressing his alignment with white supremacy or his misogyny. But instead of discussing real substantive issues, it is easy for pundits, for commentators, and for politicians to instead focus on doubling down on their ableism, of saying that if someone is or is perceived as having a disability, that must mean that they are unfit and incompetent. When we, when you talk about some of that coverage, you know, a lot of the scrutiny over even uh, Fetterman's use of closed captioning or captioning technology. Uh, and so when I think about that, you know, how society will make certain accommodations. But when we think about the number of Americans who are disabled, um, those dis- disabilities are not always visible. And so what should people be thinking about uh, moving forward, Lydia? As someone who is both an advocate and an educator, as well as a candidate for office, I think often about how our society really embraces the ableist idea that there's not just only one way to exist or to be human, but there's only one way to show capability. There's only one way to think. There's only one way to learn. There's only one way to communicate. There's only one pace at which people can communicate. And, of course, that's just fundamentally not true. But I think instead about how we can embrace and give space for multiple ways of existing, right? And so I think about making space for people who take longer to communicate because they're using augmentative or alternative communication. I'm thinking about making space for people who are communicating with support from interpreters and the people who don't understand the language they're communicating in, no matter what that is, whether it's Portuguese or Haitian Creole or Amharic or American Sign Language. I'm thinking about the ways in which our current political process and the expectations that are placed on candidates who are running for office really embody and exemplify those ableist norms and expectations that candidates have to perform certain physical tasks in a certain way, that candidates are expected to be able to respond lightning speed within three minutes during a debate, and that the average person may not be able to do those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not capable of holding office or that they wouldn't be an effective, responsive, and accountable leader. And, you know, the work of being a senator or being a state legislator doesn't depend upon the ability to respond rapid fire in 60 seconds to three minutes in a debate. It doesn't depend upon the ability to walk door to door to talk to voters, even though those are expectations that are placed upon candidates in the normative sphere. So I think instead about how we can be creative in rethinking why we assume that people have to do certain tasks and do them in a certain way and at a certain pace in order to be considered viable candidates or potential leaders. You're hearing Lydia XC Brown. They're a disability justice advocate and an autistic person who's also running as a candidate for Maryland State House. Lydia, uh, stay with us. I wanted to take a quick call. Noelle's calling in from New Haven. Noelle, you're on the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for raising this topic. It is um, timely, and I don't think we can say enough about it. 
Um, thank you to your guests. And as a special ed teacher, I just want to say I have worked in the field of differently abled people for 30 years. And the gift that they bring to us is exactly the gift of smashing, really, the myth in the United States that we can do it alone. No, we need each other. Franklin Roosevelt, one of our best presidents, suffered from polio, and that um, didn't seem to impact the ability uh, he had to get things done. So, John Fetterman, go John Fetterman. Um, and thank you again to your guests. Thank you, Noel, for your call. Uh, Janet Williams, you're still with us. Did you want to respond to Noel's comments? You know, I would say that it, I think it's very interesting that, uh, you know, we didn't know President Roosevelt used a wheelchair while he was in office. And I think that says a lot to, you know, even back then that people didn't want to uh, portray him as a person with a disability because they would see that as um, a negative. Uh, Lydia, who's still with us, we got a comment uh, from a person uh, who's in East Haddam who wanted to uh, share that uh, he traveled overseas a bit. And what's interesting about ableism abroad is they use the word determined instead of disabled, that these people are determined. Uh, He's curious your take on that, Lydia. This is Lydia. I also note that the comment we had on the phone from Noel also use different language to describe disability, and well use the phrase differently able. And now I personally don't like to use language like differently abled or special needs or exceptional or the phrase in reference to disability. And the reason why is that using euphemistic language to avoid saying disability ends up reinforcing and perpetuating the very stigma that such terminology is trying to undermine or to challenge. By avoiding saying the word disability, we further entrench the idea that to be disabled is a negative or bad thing, that disability is inherently undesirable, and that disability equates to some form of inferiority. And when we say the words disability and disabled, we recognize both that it is okay to be disabled, that disability is a natural part of the human experience, as the preamble to the Americans with Disabilities Act states, and we recognize the very real impact of social, cultural, and political realities in shaping what we consider to be a disability and the experiences of disabled people as a minoritized and marginalized community and society. Mm-hmm. Janet Williams, did you want to respond to what Lydia shared? Um, yes, Lydia, I wished I lived in Maryland and I could vote for you and work for your campaign. Um, the other, um, the other thing that I would say about that, on your comment about disability, it's so interesting because I've mentioned to people that I have a disability and they immediately say, well, no, you don't. No, you don't. You're getting better. And so it's this, you know, they're saying it's not okay <laughs> for me to have a disability and don't worry about it. You'll, you'll get better. So I completely agree with you. And I think using any other euphemisms for disability definitely um takes away from the fact that it's okay to have a disability. Lydia, can I ask uh, what it's been like uh, running uh, for uh, Maryland State House? Well, I can say as a first-time candidate, I've learned a lot about the political process that you just don't learn from books or trainings or conversations. And 
trust me, I've had plenty. I've been to workshops for people interested in running for office. About the other people I've worked on campaigns in the past, it is not as actually doing it. But, you know, I, I will say that as a disabled person, I've certainly experienced challenges and, and barriers in the process of running that might not apply for non-disabled people. But, you know, I think I've, I've risen to the challenge. Uh, I, I will, you know, one thing I can, I can note is that I've gotten very, very good at phone calling people to ask them for money, which is not <laughs> a skill I thought I would have to develop as an attorney. Well, we re- really appreciate hearing your perspective and uh, your experience on the campaign trail. Again, Lydia Exe Brown, a disability justice advocate, an autistic person running for the Maryland State House. Lydia, thank you for your time on our show. Thank you again for having me. I'm always glad to be here. And Lydia has also worked on a glossary of ableist language. We'll be sure to share that with our listeners later on our social media. Dr. Janet Williams is still with us, CEO and president of Minds Matter LLC, who works with individuals with brain injury and their families. Coming up, we're going to continue talking about ableism in life and in politics. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our conversation about ableism or discrimination against disabled people or people perceived to be disabled is pegged to how the press and some of the public have responded to the candidacy of John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Fetterman is recovering from a stroke that has left him with an auditory processing disorder. And in a recent debate, Fetterman used a closed captioning system. Some have questioned if he should be running for U.S. Senate. But neurologists have said language issues do not indicate cognitive impairment for all stroke survivors. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Dr. Kevin Sheth, director of Yale Center for Brain and Mind Health. Uh, Dr. Sheth, welcome to our show. Good morning. Welcome, and thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Sheth, I mentioned an auditory processing disorder. I'm sure listeners have read or, or um, heard about that in in, the, in light of uh, Fetterman's candidacy, his recovery from a stroke. So, so explain what that is and, and how common it is. Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, when uh, we hear the term auditory processing, I, I should say that it, it's a little bit hard for me to decipher exactly what that means. That could it could mean a few different things. Um, when I hear auditory, I think like many folks, I might uh, start thinking about hearing. But in the context of uh, speech and language difficulty after a stroke, what is much more common is actually uh, the mechanical challenges uh, with speech articulation and then also with all of the aspects of language. And I'm I'm happy to break down what I mean by that, if that's helpful. Yes, please. So 
Uh, speech and language, in some ways, as you can imagine, are very much interconnected, but they're also distinct entities. In some ways, as an oversimplification, I may think of speech as uh, the coordination of the many mechanical movements that are required in order to produce sound uh, that we translate into words. Uh, you can imagine that coordinating the muscles of your vocal cords along with the muscles of your throat and neck, along with the muscles of your mouth and tongue, all of these elements working in concert uh, together that really produces speech. And all of those elements are really muscles that are controlled by different parts of the brain. So you can think about speech as a way in which uh, the, it's sort of there's this mechanical element to it. If we then look at language, uh, language is related to speech, but language uh, has many different uh, components as well. So for example, uh, when we think about language, it's really the uh, putting together the words, words into sentences, and sentences into uh, simple and complex thoughts that we communicate from one individual to another. And so you can imagine that finding the right word, uh, spoken language, those are elements of speech and language production, but there's also comprehension. So when uh, you're uh, giving me a sentence or speaking to me, I have to incorporate what I hear and then uh, provide that with meaning. And that's what we often refer to as language comprehension. And so there are different elements of language after a stroke, in part depending on the nature of the stroke and the location, there can be some elements, but not all of speech that are affected. There can be some elements of language, but not all that are necessarily affected. Uh, so it really varies from person to person. In light of, of again, what we're focusing on, and that is uh, the perception of, of candidate who's recovering from a stroke and whether that impairs uh, cognitive abilities, you know, what do you want our listeners to think about uh, in this larger debate? Sure. So uh, it first of all begs the question for what we mean by cognition. And I, I think embedded in your question, what, what you're suggesting is, you know, are there sort of non-language components of cognition, the ability to process information, uh, the ab ability to think critically, uh, is language a surrogate for uh, uh, sort of non-language cognition? And, and the answer is, well, it sort, of, it sort of depends. But I will say that one does not necessarily translate into another. So in other words, that you can, after a stroke, have a, a disability in an, an area of language, but actually have cognition that's actually relatively or completely intact. Sometimes if you have a very large stroke or depending on the location of the stroke or strokes, uh, you may have sort of parallel deficits in both cognition and, and language, but I want to emphasize that one does not necessarily mean the other. Thank you for that uh, description. When you're working with patients who are recovering from stroke, can you talk about what you hear from them with the type of scrutiny they face as they uh, try to return uh, to work and, and the life that they had before the stroke? Well, I think it's it's very challenging to say the uh, say the least. Certainly for individuals, and I would say also for people in the individual sphere, uh, your work colleagues, your friends, your family. Um, I think we've come a long way as a society here in the United States with regard to how we view disability, uh, but we certainly still have a long way to go. 
you know, neurological problems like those that occur after a stroke, they're, they're confusing and they seem unusual uh, despite being incredibly common. And when those uh, deficits involve aspects of speech and language, I think sometimes um, individuals don't know how to explain that and, and people, even well-intentioned, don't know how to react to that. And, and sometimes the consequence of that is for people to become isolated or to retract or for us to um, have some embarrassment or discomfort around those things. And, and I think that's somewhat unfortunate because what it, it doesn't acknowledge is that actually people have an ability to recover and they have the capacity to actually contribute a great deal. You know, I, I would suggest when I look at patients, um, think about not what you can't do, not your disability, but think about what you can do, your ability. You know, stroke is very common, unfortunately. And uh, if we think about 800,000 people every year having a stroke in the United States, I think as a society, we would really want to look at all of these patients and think about, well, geez, what are ways in which we can still have people contribute to having productive lives and contributing to broader society? You're hearing Dr. Kevin Sheth again here where we live, director of Yale Center for Brain and Mind Health. Still with us on Zoom, Dr. Janet Williams, CEO and president of Minds Matter LLC. This is an organization, again, that helps people with brain injury and their families. So, Janet, when we again, when we think that about that question uh, where people are tying like how someone speaks with their cognitive ability or their intelligence, I'm sure this is something that uh, you have a lot of thoughts on. I really do. You know, what the first thing that comes to mind for me is what is the cognitive benchmark for someone to be in politics? What is that ability level? We we haven't defined it. And so we're allowing kind of society to define it. And, you know, as Dr. Sheth said, what are the abilities? What can you contribute? For me, I would segue right into policy. You know, wouldn't it be great for people with disabilities to be in office so we can look at disability policy and the fact that once you are eligible for SSI or SSDI, you are very limited to the amount of money that you can make. So maybe we should be looking at those policies or the fact that there is a law saying that people with disabilities can be paid some minimum wage. It's an 80 year old law that we're yet to fix. So for me, it's what are the unique contributions of someone with a disability who is in office that they can use their personal experience um, in policy on on how to change things. Um, And then of course, accommodations, which is something, you know, we have seen accommodations for um, the closed captioning, which I think was very effective. Um, and a bit off-putting, I think, you know, as Dr. Shea said, it made people uncomfortable. Um, but wouldn't it be great if that were the norm and not the um, not the the exception? You know, people use teleprompters all the time. Um, and, and we've seen, you know, some debate around that and having that connected to someone's cognitive ability. But the real question is, what are the cognitive abilities you need to to be a leader or, or be in politics? We're talking about ableism in life and in politics. You can join us if you have a question or comment for our guests, 
888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we started this conversation talking about ableism. Janet, let's talk about ableism that exists in the medical setting. Yeah, I mean, right now, it's hard to find a primary care physician who will see someone with a disability. Um, the number of women I know who use a wheelchair who um, can't get on the OBGYN table, yet there's no accommodation for that. Um, and just the assumptions that are made. The other, the other piece of the medical community is we have um, an idea that people need to be fixed, that it's not okay to have a disability. In my experience, um, you know, I went to one specialist because, you know, I've, I've, I have left foot drop and at least four physicians have recommended to me that I have surgery to re rewire the muscles and tendons in my foot to keep it prone. So I don't have foot drop. And I'm like, why, what, why do I want that? So just the, the medical community's insistence that people be fixed and that they're not okay if they have a disability that that has been a huge, huge challenge. And how much time and energy do we try, you know, spend on fixing people and how much time and energy do we help support people to live, work and play in the community. And that's why I started my company is the number of people with brain injuries who were being forced into segregated group homes away from everybody until they were better, whatever that means. And we were saying, no, everyone has a place in the community. Everyone should be in their own home and we people can live, work and play as they are. When you talk about uh, those uh, with disabilities and often they have to advocate for themselves, Janet? Yes, absolutely. Or they have family members who um, advocate for them. But yes, we are very strong on people with disabilities advocating for themselves and being heard and being included in every conversation. Um, The number of times I've been invited to a meeting expecting that I'm going to see the person with a disability there and they're not there. We're there to talk about them and what's best for them. And I always say, wait a minute, uh, the person needs to tell us what they want and what's best for them. And that that goes across cognitive ability. No matter what your ability is, you still need to be in the room and you still need to be offering a voice um, on your your own goals and your own needs. Dr. Kevin Sheth is still with us, Director of Yale Center for Brain and Mind Health. Dr. Sheth, did you want to add or bring your perspective into the the question about ableism in the medical setting? Well, I I think there, you know, we'd like to think, I I work as a neurologist and uh, we uh, interact and uh, work with patients all the time that have uh, various disabilities. And I would suspect that despite our best intentions, there are in our day-to-day practice things that we uh, unintentionally don't consider or sometimes have an unconscious bias towards, um, not necessarily because um, people uh, want something uh, want something easy, but rather because um, we, we, it, the, the, the threshold is a little bit higher, it seems, to um, a little bit more activation energy to find methods by which we can work with patients that have disability. And I think a way around that uh, as a medical field and as a scientific community, but we, we need to address that head on. I think we have to sort of um, not be embarrassed about it. You know, when you walk into a room, you may otherwise notice something about a person. You know, you may notice that they're tall or you may just notice some other aspect. But certainly when you walk into a room and you hear someone with a language deficit or you see someone in the wheelchair, understandably, I would say, 
that that might be one of the first things that you notice. And you don't have to have guilt about that, but you, you should see that as an opportunity to say, hey, how can we actually address it head on? How can we incorporate it into our overall plans? And I think that's something that we can do both in the medical field and as a broader society. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go back to Janet Williams again, Dr. Janet Williams, CEO and president of Minds Matter, LLC. Uh, when we think about ableism, of course, there's the workplace. And uh, after living through almost three years of a pandemic, many more Americans that are now part of the disability community because of long COVID. We'll be talking about that, the protections for them just ahead on our show. But I'm wondering if you can talk about ableism in the workplace and, and what you're seeing. Yeah, you know, in 2020, only 17% of people with disabilities were employed compared to 61.8% of non-disabled. And while, you know, that's um, that was during the pandemic, it's still the same um, distance between. So, you know, 50% more people without disabilities are, um, are employed. And, you know, there are many aspects of why that happens. Some is policy. Um, and I mentioned it earlier that your SSI and SSDI are in jeopardy when you go back to work, if you've been out of work for a year or more. Um, your uh, benefits um, and also the attitudes of the people um, where you work. We, we hire people with brain injuries all the time um, and have extra, extra you know, we, we are very good about asking what are the reasonable accommodations that you need? Um, I work with a woman um, I, I, who had a brain injury and she wanted to work in an inpatient rehab setting and she sent out 20 resumes to inpatient rehabs that had for people with brain injury. She got her bachelor's and her master's degree after her brain injury, sent these 20 letters and, and resumes. Her resume was rich with experience and mentioned that she had a brain injury in her cover letter. She got zero interviews. She came to me, she was so discouraged. She said, I didn't even get a first interview. I know they're hiring. And I said, well, pick some more places and mention that you don't, don't mention that you have a brain injury. She did 10 more. She got 10 interviews because she didn't mention that she had a brain injury. So again, it's that stigma. It's that um, ableism. It's those attitudes toward people with disabilities and not looking at what are the contributions that people can make. For us, when uh, we have a therapist who has a brain injury and they go in and work with someone with a brain injury, it, it it's just incredible because the person they're working with is saying, wait, what? You went back to school after your brain injury and now you're working with other people with brain injuries? I can do this. Um, and so really looking at what are the essential functions of the job and, and how you can how we can support you to do those is the most important thing. And real quick, Janet, uh, once someone who is disabled is employed, be a reasonable accommodations. We hear that phrase a lot in terms of, you know, how an employer um, um, should accommodate uh, this particular employee. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give us your perspective on that as well, um, you know, and, and what, again, employees have to do to fight for particular accommodations that they need. Yeah, and, and we do see that all the time. Um, you know, it's inherent in the questions that are asked during an interview, like, do you have a car? Can you drive? No, the question is, 
can you get from point A to point B? You know, what can you use public trans? Can you can you get from point A to point B? Because people can use public transportation. Maybe they have a driver. What are the accommodations that you use to get from point A to point B? And you can't even ask about those accommodations until someone chooses to do that. Um, and what's reasonable, you know, it's reasonable that there is a ramp into every single building because it's the law, both federally and, you know, through the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, it's reasonable. Um, and and each, each employer needs to define what's reasonable for them. And, and sometimes that does require, you know, a lot of advocacy and a fight. Um, but sometimes it's, um, you know, we, we have someone who he doesn't like to interact with the public. So he works the night shift facing shelves and, and um, doing, doing night things when there are no other people in the store. Um, and so really looking at what are those reasonable accommodations. Again, you've been hearing Dr. Janet Williams, CEO and president of Minds Matter LLC. Thank you so much for your time on our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. And Dr. Kevin Sheth, Director of Yale Center for Brain and Mind Health, thank you for your time as well. Thank you. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Don't go anywhere because after the break, we're going to find out how long COVID has been qualified as a disability by the federal government, what this means for both employees and employers. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As we talk about disabilities, it's important to note one in four Americans has a disability. Many of those disabilities are not visible. Now, long COVID has been qualified as a disability by the federal government. We know symptoms of long COVID can range from a few weeks of fatigue to many months of brain fog. According to the Brookings Institute, long COVID's keeping nearly 4 million people out of work. For more on how both employees and employers are responding, with us on Zoom is Dan Schwartz, employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin and creator of the Connecticut Employment Law blog. Dan, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you as always, Lucy. Thank you. And so I mentioned this, I think it's a DOJ distinction on long COVID as a disability. Can you you explain this and why it's important? Yeah, I, I think it's important to understand what a disability is, at least under the, the law. And that is a, you know, substantial uh, physical or mental uh, impairment that affects one or more major life activities. So, you know, we typically view the cold and the flu. Those are just temporary ailments overall that may not uh, be a disability. And I think people were thinking COVID would fall within that. And last year, uh, the Department of Justice uh, came out with guidance that said, no, long COVID can qualify as a uh, as a disability if it meets the other criteria that we normally think of as for a disability. So what does that mean for workplaces and how they're responding? Is it is it concrete enough for them or is there too much gray here in terms of how a particular employer can respond to an employee who has long COVID? 
Well, you've even gotten additional guidance from the EEOC that okay. that basically says employers need to take this seriously. Uh, and that means if an employee comes to you and says, look, um, my doctor has, has told me I'm experiencing some symptoms, um, I may need some, some help, it's up to the employer to listen, uh, but also to have that interactive discussion. That's really a a key phrase under the law is an interactive discussion. It's normally a back and forth uh, of what the employee might need to perform the essential functions of the job and what the employer can can reasonably offer. And for long COVID, you can see that there will be things like maybe some additional time off uh, or additional time to perform a task uh, that uh, that an employer can and should offer um, that isn't going to be too costly for the employer, but that will enable the employee um, to do the job. And are employers, are some responding with a little skepticism around long COVID, Dan? I'm just thinking about are there complaints being filed from uh, people uh, who are not getting those uh, accommodations or interactive discussions, as, you, as you've mentioned? Yeah, we. I mean, we we certainly hear of those instances. We've seen some lawsuits uh, that have been filed uh, there, and uh, sometimes the stories are more complicated than even a lawsuit can um, can suggest. But I think um, the employers that simply deny it or say I don't believe you um, are probably the same employers that have um, not listened to employees when they have other types of disabilities. Um, I'd like to think those are um, the exception rather than the rule, but we know from experience that um, and from the discussions here today that people with disabilities um, face a lot of uh, challenges, both uh, seen and unseen. Mm. Again, you're hearing Dan Schwartz, who's with us on Zoom, employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin, a creator of the Connecticut Employment a Law blog. I'd seen this phrase, uh, Dan, the hierarchy of disabilities. So when people are able to um, see a particular uh, disability, whether someone is in a wheelchair or um, if they're aware that someone uh, may have hearing loss, there's like different levels of, of what people or the public uh, think of when it comes to accommodating. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, when you think about how employers should be responding, when, especially with long COVID, as the science continues to evolve and, and some people get, um, you know, come out of uh, getting COVID and uh, they don't have a lot of long-term symptoms or they might manifest a little bit later and, you know, how, how employers can respond uh, with that particular uh, diagnosis or symptoms that um, appear not as what we were used to before the pandemic, I should say. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The uh, EEOC has given us some guidance that says if someone has like a known disability, uh, then you need to begin those reasonable accommodation discussions. You can't really say, well, I, I need proof that uh, you can only use one leg or, or you know, that you can't see. Um, really getting employers to move beyond the challenge uh, of whether someone has a disability and moving to what are the accommodations. And that was in part a change to the law back in 2008 that um, that revised the Americans with Disabilities Act to, to really remove that from, from most of the legal equations. I think for long COVID, 
Um, what employers can do is, you know, ask for some medical documentation. That's fine. And employees um, should um, certainly speak up and be the advocate for themselves as to why this is uh, needed. I think w- one of the other important things that might get overlooked in this discussion about long COVID is Beyond the ADA, there may be some other protections that employees have. So they may be eligible for FMLA leave um, because it may be a rise to the level of a serious health condition. And remember, Connecticut now has uh, paid leave. So uh, employees can apply uh, for that benefit uh, if they've been contributing over the last year and and take that. And you can even uh, find information about that on the Connecticut paid leave website uh, that talks about COVID and how in many instances it may qualify uh, for um protection. When we think about the conversations that employees and employers are having, you know, certainly I would think that there is particular training that even HR needs to go through to make sure that uh, they're following the law and the accommodations uh, that, that need to be met, Dan? Yeah, uh, for sure. And um, if anything, over the, the last uh, uh, three years, it's we've all gotten a crash course on how to deal with um, diseases and vaccines and everything else. And y- you add this to the, uh, to the pile. I mean, it's, it's certainly complicated, um, uh, because no one's had this experience prior, right? No one heard of long COVID, uh, back in 2019. So I, I think for HR people and for companies, it's getting their staff educated as to what it is, um, and that requires a little bit of, of of training, but then also what the law requires. And and from that perspective, the law the law is fairly stable uh, in this area. We're just applying a new uh, ailment to that. And and uh, I would encourage employers to stop looking at the label and look at the impact uh, that long COVID is having on people. If they are really fatigued and you see them struggling, it doesn't matter the label. Um, you, you know, you, you ought to be seeing if you can can help them. Um, you know, we're all we're all going through this together. It, uh, it it's sort of short sighted uh, to do it otherwise. Right. Uh, before we go, uh, Dan, uh, what are we missing in terms of how our listeners should be thinking about this? Maybe if their loved one is experiencing this, or they themselves are are um, experiencing uh, symptoms uh, from long COVID, uh, and you know the conversations that uh, they should be having with their employer, or vice versa. Yeah, I think, you know, first, obviously, is is um, talk with their doctors and make sure they're getting the care that they need. Um, but then I think look at some of the resources that are available. Like I said, paid uh, sick leave may be available to that employee, uh, or they might be eligible for, for FMLA leave, which protects their job uh, when they have to take it. And that law has been changed and expanded um, recently, so they might not have been covered maybe five years ago, and you might not think it applies now, but um, that's something to to keep in mind as well. And then I think third is be an advocate for yourself. The law does protect employees uh, for speaking up in this uh, area, and I know that can be intimidating, and um, we know all the challenges uh, that are 
that employees face in that. But, um, you know, speaking up uh, gives them the best chance of getting what they need from their uh, from their employer. Again, you've been hearing Dan Schwartz, employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin, creator of the Connecticut Employment Law blog. A lot of good stuff on that blog. Uh, take a take a read when you get a chance. We'll be sure to link that on our website as well. Dan, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for your time on the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Uh, thanks to Dylan Reyes, who is our technical producer today. We'll be back tomorrow.